Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Today we continue our occasional series, Our Favorite Books, with Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's enduringly popular creation, Sherlock Holmes. And you're hearing some music uh, to one of the many adaptations of Sherlock Holmes right now. Sherlock Holmes is thriving on television and continues to occupy an important place in popular culture. The famous fictional detective even figures prominently in the debate over evolution versus intelligent design. We're going to look at how the character has changed over the years and how our response to him has changed. We'll ask what Sherlock Holmes means in our culture today. We'll also explore Utah and Mormon connections and hear sound clips from radio, television, and film. And we're going to ask you to tell us your favorite Sherlock Holmes book, film, or television series. The number is 800-826-1495, or you can reach us by email to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. And we welcome in, in studio, USU Associate Professor of English, Brian McCuskey. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Tom. Brian McCuskey, uh, you, uh, you teach 19th century Yeah, I literature. teach 19th century British lit, from Jane Austen to Thomas Hardy, basically. And including uh, Sherlock Holmes, Conan Doyle? I do. I use Sherlock Holmes in my Victorian classes, as well as uh, when I teach Introduction to Literary Analysis, as well. Turns out Sherlock Holmes is an English major, of course. Yeah, well, good. Yeah, well, wait, yeah he'd have to be. Um, and uh, we bring in uh, Michael Homer, who's a Utah author. He's also a, an attorney in Utah, practices law in Salt Lake City. He's an award-winning author. He's published in numerous articles in fields of law and Mormonism. He's the editor of On the Way to Somewhere Else. Uh, out from University of Utah Press, and Joseph's Temples, a dynamic relationship between Freemasonry and Mormonism, among other books. And he has uh, done a lot of study uh, on Arthur Conan Doyle and uh, spiritualism, connection to Mormonism, and uh, connection to Utah as well. Michael Homer, welcome to the program. Tom, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Appreciate you uh, being with us. Let's jump right in with, we have uh, several sound clips prepared. Uh, let's, uh, let's go with the most recent. This is uh, the new BBC Sherlock Holmes. And uh, this is him being Sherlock Holmes. This is the character that we, that we know and love. When I met you for the first time yesterday, I said Afghanistan or Iraq. You looked surprised. Yes, how did you know? I didn't know. I saw. Your haircut, the way you hold yourself, says military. But your conversation as you entered the room... A bit different from my day. ...said trained at Bart, so army doctor, obvious. Your face is tanned, but no tan above the wrists. You've been abroad, but not sunbathing. Your lips really bad when you walk, but you don't ask for a chairman. You stand like you've forgotten about it. So it's at least partly psychosomatic. That says the original circumstances of the injury were traumatic. Wounded in action, then. Wounded in action, Suntan, Afghanistan, or Iraq. You said I had a therapist. Got a psychosomatic limp, of course, you've got a therapist. Then there's your brother. Hmm? Your phone, it's expensive, email-enabled MP3 player. Are you looking for a flat share? You wouldn't waste money on this. It's a gift, then. Scratches, not one. Many over time. It's been in the same pocket as keys and coins. Man sitting next to me wouldn't treat his one luxury item like this, so it's had a previous owner. Next bit's easy, you know it already. The engraving. Harry Watson, clearly a family member who's given you his old phone. Not your father. This is a young man's gadget. Could be a cousin, but you're a war hero who can't find a place to live. Unlikely you've got an extended family. Certainly not one you're close to. So, brother, it is. Now, Clara. Who's Clara? Three cases says it's a romantic attachment. Expense of the phone says wife, not girlfriend. She must have given it to him recently. This model's only six months old. Marriage in trouble then. Six months old, he's just given it away. If she'd left him, he would have kept it. People do sentiment, but no, he wanted rid of it. He left her. He gave the phone to you that says he wants you to stay in touch. You're looking for cheap accommodation, and you're not going to your brother for help. It says you've got problems with him. Maybe you liked his wife. Maybe you don't like his drinking. How can 
you possibly know about the drinking. Shot in the dark, good one though. Power connection, tiny little scuff marks around the edge of it. Every night it goes to plug it in to charge, but his hands are shaking. You never see those marks on a sober man's phone, never see a drunks without them. There you go, you see, you were right. I was right. Right about what? The police don't consult amateurs. That was amazing. You think so? Of course it was. It was extraordinary. It was quite extraordinary. It's not what people normally say. What do people normally say? Stop. That's from the new BBC uh, series, quite uh, popular. Let me start with Brian McCuskey on this. This is, uh, some of this is a little bit of reflection of our times, isn't it? It's, it's kind of dialed up the snark, the, you know, the, the sarcasm. I don't know if that was always there, but, uh, it, uh, but the, the uh, idea of Sherlock Holmes as being thinking faster, thinking better than anyone else around him is, I think, has always, always been there. One of the great things about the BBC production is that because Sherlock can now do these monologues out loud at high speed, you get a much better sense than you do in the stories about how fast he's thinking. Of course, Talking that fast also lets him mask some of the holes in his reasoning that otherwise uh, you might stop to question for a moment. And then Watson, of course, fulfills the same function that he does in the stories, which is to say that was absolutely brilliant. Yeah. Uh, once again, you know, kind of reaffirming the fact that Holmes knows more than anyone else in the room. I want to go, go back and, uh, and ask uh, Ron McCuskey, also Michael Homer, how you first encountered uh, Sherlock Holmes. But I want to treat that right now. Uh, the fact that if you really look at Sherlock's reasoning, there, there are a lot of holes there. Well, it's best to read the stories quickly, uh, of course. The, uh, the opening in the, in the very first Sherlock Holmes story, the Study in Scarlet, the novella that introduced him to the world, he sizes up Watson and um, deduces from the tan that Watson has that he's a military man who's just come back from Afghanistan because it's clearly a tropical tan. But Afghanistan is not in the tropics. And in fact, it would have made a lot more sense if Holmes had said, well, you've just come back from the Zulu Wars uh, in Eastern Africa. But this is Sherlock Holmes. And so as soon as he says that that's a tropical tan, you're from Afghanistan, then suddenly, you know, the continental drift happens and Afghanistan mm -hmm. is now officially in the tropics. <laughs> and, and there are other examples. We'll, we'll go into them. Uh, let me start uh, on this with Michael Homer. Uh, how did you get introduced to uh, Sherlock Holmes? What was your first exposure? Yeah, I think it. Uh, well, that, I think that clip was from uh, *Study in Pink*, which is kind of a uh, spinoff from uh, *Study in Scarlet* that uh, Brian mentioned. And that's that's my connection. Is a *Study in Scarlet*? Was, the first Sherlock Holmes story was as much about Mormon history and kind of a shilling shocker that was popular uh, in uh, England in the 1880s as it was about Sherlock Holmes. And uh, I would. My thesis is that Sherlock probably would have never climbed out of uh, that story and into 59 other stories but for uh, an encounter he had later uh, with Oscar Wilde where he was requested to uh, write another novel. And he says, well, I think I'll write another Sherlock Holmes novel. So uh, for me, it's as much about uh, trying to get into Doyle's head about how he viewed uh, the Western United States Mormonism and really his quest to find a new religion, and uh, and eventually he found spiritualism, as I think you uh, you mentioned in your uh, introduction. Uh, but sh clearly, uh, even in the early 1880s, we now know that he was investigating Mormonism, and uh, uh, obviously decided not to go there for a, a host of reasons. But uh, that that was my 
introduction and uh, primary interest in uh, in uh, in the stories. I definitely wanted uh, to continue that thread. Uh, I wonder. Let me start with Michael Homer on this uh, particular question. Uh, and I don't know if you looked into this. Uh, why do you think Sherlock Holmes almost immediately was so popular a character? He uh, and it sounded well, like Conan Doyle didn't. Uh, you know, he 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 did the first book and then he. He didn't originally have plans to continue as a series, but it, I think pretty quickly it became a popular character. Yeah, and I, I, I don't think it happened after studying Scarlet uh, because uh, it, it was, as I say, his his primary motive there was to just publish his first novel. And this was not only the first Sherlock Holmes story, but his first novel. And uh, I think he brought in the topic of Mormonism uh, in the 1860s and 70s because it was a, a popular uh, uh, topic in England and he thought it was going to sell some books. But uh, after uh, he wrote his second novel, uh, Sign of Four, and uh, then from there began writing the short stories for the uh, the, the Strand magazine, that's where it really uh, became a popular uh, uh, he Sherlock Holmes became a popular character, so I think uh, you know, and you know, I think uh, Brian's interest is uh, is you know we've talked about this before in terms of the, uh, the logical gaps in, in the stories in, in Sherlock. That's surely what keeps people excited now about the uh, about the Sherlock Holmes stories. Uh, but uh, again, I'm more interested in the historical background of the first story and. Doyle's uh, conversion to spiritualism and his uh, visit to Salt Lake City in 1923 as part of his uh, missionary tour. Yeah, that's and then we'll get into that. Uh, that's uh, a lot of people may not know about that um, that connection to to Utah. So uh, Brian McCuskey, um, taking it back to the original audiences, what do you think was appealing about this Sherlock Holmes character? Well, I think what's appealing now is what was appealing then, which was Sherlock Holmes manages to do kind of two magic tricks at the same time. He he takes the everyday world and he makes it mysterious. So suddenly now you can, uh, as I'm doing right now, Tom, looking at your shirt sleeves and trying to assess, you know, exactly what uh, you've been up to today. Um, I can take, you know, any sort of um, detail like that and conjure up some kind of backstory. And then flipping that around, he also takes... um, the mysterious and the chaotic and the confusing and suggests that behind all of this there is a, a kind of order. At the time, in the late 19th century, this is a, a time both when you had uh, the rise of professional science and a tremendous amount of confusing new information coming out about the world and how it worked. And so Sherlock Holmes, in a way, is a kind of fantasy that you know, if you hang in there long enough and you follow him long enough, all of this is eventually going to make sense. Mm. Um, uh, let me uh, turn back to Michael Homer. Let, uh, tell me a bit about uh, Conan Doyle. He, uh, he was a physician, right? And uh, he, he apparently was a spiritual seeker, uh, eventually uh, settled on spiritualism. So first of all, maybe a little background on Conan Doyle. Yeah, yeah. He, uh, he grew up in uh, Edinburgh, uh, Scotland. Uh, his mother was of uh, Irish uh, descent. Uh, his father was, if you went way back, all for, for all, also Irish descent, but... Uh, most recently from uh, London, came from a very uh, famous uh, family of artists and uh, uh, ended up in, uh, his father was kind of a ne'er-do-well uh, black sheep in the family and uh, was, was actually uh, did some interesting illustrations. But he, he grew up very strict 
a Roman Catholic family was uh, uh, was went to Roman Catholic uh, prep schools uh, in uh, near Preston in uh, in northern England. Uh, also studied in uh, Austria at a, a Catholic school, and uh, just uh, basically rebelled against uh, that upbringing and. Uh, more than anything else, he didn't like dogma and uh, thought that if there was a true church out there, it had to be tapped into uh, another world, uh, a spiritual world. And that's what attracted him uh, to Mormonism because of uh, claims of uh, uh, modern revelation. Uh, and so he studied that. He studied theosophy. He studied spiritualism. And when he finally set up medical practice in uh, Portsmouth, uh, in southern England, uh, he uh, got into uh, a group of folks that uh, uh, were uh, doing uh, uh, table uh, table wrappings, et cetera, et cetera, and uh, became a uh, actually converted to spiritualism in the 1880s, uh, the first time, and uh, uh, that's right when he uh, wrote a study in Scarlet, uh, because. In my view, that's when he rejected uh, Mormonism finally uh, and uh, became a spiritualist. And uh, then uh, later on in life, uh, he, when he married the second time after his first wife died of tuberculosis, his new wife was a real devoted spiritualist, and he took up the cause more enthusiastically. And uh, beginning in 1915, 1916, uh, kind of put down the pen in terms of uh, fictional works and became more of a devoted uh, missionary on behalf of spiritualism and uh, eventually came to Utah. And uh, that's an interesting story in and of itself. Yeah, I'll have you tell that uh, later in the program. Uh, so right. just uh, for, for people who don't know, spiritualism, uh, define spiritualism. Well, spiritualism uh, in, in uh, you know, it, it began in upstate New York, the same place that uh, Mormonism did with the Fox sisters who said that they heard uh, noises uh, from uh, ghosts who had previously resided uh, in the home. And so basically it's a belief that you can communicate with uh, the spirits of uh, persons who have, uh, have died and then uh, but now have returned to uh, speak. And so that, that can either be through seances or, uh, you know, uh, many different ectoplasmic apparitions, and we could probably talk for hours about that if we really wanted to. But uh, basically it's a belief in the hereafter and that disincarnate spirits can talk to uh, men and women in modern times. Mm. Brian McCuskey, um, you, and we'll get into this next uh, segment after a break, but uh, you've studied, you've stumbled upon this researching something else that uh, Sherlock Holmes, the character, is cited in debates between intelligent design and, and evolution. Um, but but first of all, I want to have you talk about this uh, seeming contradiction. Um, Conan Doyle is, a, is you would think he's a man of science, right? He's he's a physician, um, yet he's he's spiritually seeking, and he ends up with spiritualism, which I imagine a lot of scientific minds would reject out of hand. Well, as Michael says, he was deeply suspicious of dogma as the foundation for religious belief, but he still had kind of religious longing, uh, even as he was practicing as a physician. And so um, that's, I think, what drew him uh, to 
investigate a form of religion that was grounded in science, that claimed to, um, I mean, I, I would, like Michael, I'd love to talk for hours about ectoplasm, but one of the great mm -hmm. things about ectoplasm is <laughs> that it's actually, you know, a substance that you can hold. And so it seems to be, uh, it seems to be this, you know, physical, scientific, material, mm -hmm empirical proof of the afterlife. And so... So he's trying to join the two. He's trying yeah, to find scientific proof. I, yeah, I see, yeah. Yeah, spiritualism, uh, he described it as a scientific religion because he believed in the evidence of his senses. Mm -hmm. He believed in the things that were happening in front of him in the seance room or what he perceived happening in front of him. And so he saw this as a great way to unite uh, all of this new scientific knowledge in the late 19th century with uh, a new form of faith. Mm. Let's take a break. When we come back, more, much more to talk about. I, I want to get into this uh, interesting citation by both sides in the, in the debate between intelligent design and evolution of uh, Sherlock Holmes and the fact that both sides have to ignore the author for, the, for some of the reasons we've been talking about here. Uh, we'll talk about that. We'll talk about uh, Sherlock Holmes and conspiracy theory. That's uh, another something Brian McCuskey has looked into. And we'll get into this fascinating uh, tale about uh, the study in Scarlet and the uh, portrayal of Mormons, and then um, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's visit to uh, Salt Lake City, to, to Utah. And we'll hear many more clips. Let's, in fact, going out to, to a break uh, here, let's uh, hear um, a bit of uh, the adventures of uh, Sherlock. This is a, uh, an older, I think, uh, series or movie. My word. Huh? Don't touch that. There may be fingerprints. A book of Psalms. Ah, as I anticipated. The Bible. All starting to fit together rather neatly, I'd say. Just wire up to Windermere and see if Charles has made his appearance yet. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members, and support for science reporting on Utah Public Radio comes from the Utah State University Ecology Center, providing training opportunities for today's science communicators one story at a time. 
Utah Public Radio congratulates USU's College of Humanities and Social Sciences Journalism Department for being awarded an Emmy from the Rocky Mountain Region National Academy of Television Arts and Sciences. The student-produced newscast program, ATV, is under the direction of Brian Champagne and Chris Garf. Utah Public Radio student reporter Amy Kobabe and her colleagues Connor Camo, Taylor Condi, Jeffrey Dada, Brock Damjanovich, Emily Duke, Tori Green, Tess Griffith, Natalie Humphreys, Taylor Murray, Natalie Nix, Amy Reed, and Sarah Winder were recognized during the recent 2016 Rocky Mountain Emmy Awards Gala. Kudos to the producers, reporters, and directors of USU's ATV News. Thanks for joining us for Access Utah. We are uh, continuing our occasional series, our favorite books, and today we're talking about Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's enduringly popular creation, Sherlock Holmes. Sherlock Holmes is thriving on television, continues to occupy an important place in our popular culture, and we are talking uh, with USU Associate Professor of English Brian McCuskey and with Utah author Michael Homer. We're going to, a little later in the program, talk about a, a, a very interesting visit not a lot of people know about of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle to Utah. He was uh, spreading the, the gospel, as it were, of spiritualism. He came to a hostile place for that. Uh, uh, the Mormons didn't believe in it. Um, and so that was a very interesting encounter there. And uh, we'll talk a little bit more about Study in Scarlet, uh, in which uh, book uh, Mormons are, are not portrayed in a, in a very flattering light. Uh, we'll talk about that with Michael Homer. We're talking with uh, Brian McCuskey, who teaches uh, 19th century British uh, literature, including Arthur Conan Doyle. Uh, you're welcome to join this conversation. If you have a favorite uh, Sherlock Holmes uh, television series or book, we'd love to hear about it. Um, favorite passage, 800-826-1495. We're also asking, what does Sherlock Holmes mean in our culture today? And you can join us by email to upraxcess at gmail.com. By the way, going out to break, uh, instead of uh, the series The Adventures of Sherlock, we heard instead a uh, clip from the comedy without a clue. The conceit there is that um, Sherlock is a creation of uh, Watson. And so Watson is the smart one. He hires this bumbling actor. And so you heard a bit of the mix-up that ensued there. Very funny film. <laughs> Check it out. Um, Let's, um, to begin this uh, segment, uh, Brian McCuskey, I wonder if you could read something uh, for us. Certainly. This is one of my favorite passages because it suggests that Holmes is both looking at the world as a place that's absolutely fantastical and as a place that's perfectly logical at the same time, going back to what I said earlier. This is at the beginning of a case of identity. He says to Watson, my dear fellow, life is infinitely stranger than anything which the mind of man could invent. We would not dare to conceive the things which are really mere commonplaces of existence. If we could fly out of that window, hand in hand, hover over this great city, gently remove the roofs, and peep in at the queer things which are going on, the strange coincidences, the plannings, the cross-purposes, the wonderful chains of events, working through generations and leading to the most outré results, it would make all fiction with its conventionalities and foreseen conclusions most stale and unprofitable. In other words, the real world is uh, much more interesting and, and uh, mysterious than any story you could write about it, which has the neat effect in saying that in a Conan Doyle story of making these stories seem more realistic. Mm. Yeah, interesting. That, that, that's what he was going for. Yeah, um, That's a good place for us to jump in and, and uh, have you talk about this phenomenon that you stumbled upon, Brian McCuskey, 
of uh, the use of a fictional character as an unimpeachable source in this debate between creation, uh, creationism, intelligent design, and evolution. First of all, how did, how did you encounter this? Well, I was doing um, some research for my classes on Darwin, and so I was reading some of the contemporary debates between scientists, evolutionary biologists on the one hand, arguing for Darwinian evolution, and then the resistance put up by creationists on the other hand, who argue for intelligent design, which is that God created all this, that evolutionary processes did not. And what I kept seeing over and over again was uh, appeals to fictional authority, appeals to Sherlock Holmes, citations and quotations of Holmes in order to bolster the, first the intelligent design argument. And um, the intelligent design argument is flawed in a number of ways, regardless of, of um, the beliefs behind it. Um, there's circular logic, there's moving goalposts, there's uh, begging the question, there's all kinds of logical problems there. At moments when the logic becomes most uh, strained, typically the reasoner would then invoke Sherlock Holmes, in particular the famous line, when you have eliminated the impossible, whatever remains, however improbable, must be the truth. Well, that axiom works extremely well if you're a fictional character living in a fictional universe which has been authored on your behalf so that you're always right, so that you always see every option and you can eliminate uh, with certainty uh, all but one. It doesn't actually work so well in the real kind of messy world. So I was tracking this, and then I started to see that the scientists responding to intelligent design arguments would also start quoting Sherlock Holmes. So it was a kind of smackdown over, you know, which side of the argument could um, claim Sherlock Holmes as their as their mascot, basically. And this despite the fact that you've already established that uh, some of the uh, facts that Sherlock Holmes holds up in his deductions have holes in them, right? They're not, they're not absolutely solid. Yeah, well, and the speed of the story depends upon him identifying a couple of options and then eliminating one or two of them, and then he's left with the truth. And this always works, or usually works, for Sherlock Holmes. But there are signs in the stories that even the characters in the stories are a little bit mystified about how he's doing this. Mm. At one point, uh, he's talking to a client about how he knew uh, what she'd been doing earlier that day by reading the dust and the mud on her clothes. And he goes through this whole elaborate explanation, and she looks at him and says, well, whatever your reasons, you are perfectly correct. And that's kind of what I'm getting at here, is it doesn't matter what Sherlock Holmes's reasons are. Uh, the inferences that he draws are always correct, mm -hmm. no matter what. That's one of the reasons we admire the character, isn't it? It's, you know, that he seems so brilliant. Sure, and, and his approach is perfectly sound. I mean, he does approach the world in a logical, scientific way. It's just that... Um, when you have to move continents to get Afghanistan into the tropics, or you have to invent uh, the existence of a swamp adder in India, a, a snake, by the way, which in a speckled band has to do three things. It has to drink milk, it has to be trainable by a whistle, and it also, most mysteriously, uh, has to wear a leash. <laughs> uh, we're not talking mm -hmm. about a universe in which the usual rules of logic mm -hmm. apply. Right. But it is mysterious, right? And that's, that's absolutely that's, I mean, the villains, especially, are very mysterious, including Moriarty, who who is you know that's that's a wonderful character. Yeah, Moriarty is uh, fantastic because he's even more Sherlock Holmes than Sherlock Holmes. Yeah. In fact, uh, there's one point at which they're talking to each other, facing each other down, and Sherlock Holmes says, you know, is there anything you want to say? And Moriarty says, uh, anything that I would say has already crossed your mind. Mm -hmm. And then Sherlock Holmes says, well, and then probably my reply has crossed yours. Right. 
Uh, so you have this wonderful showdown between two minds that are so good at deducing what other people are thinking that they don't even have to talk anymore. Right. This would be a good place to uh, bring in our Studio C clip, um, and, and then I'm going to want to uh, get into uh, studying Scarlet and, uh, and Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's uh, very interesting visit to Utah. Uh, but this is, a, this is what Studio C, which is uh, it's from uh, BYU-TV, it's a group of young actors that's doing sketch comedy, uh, they took this idea of the Sherlock Holmes Moriarty showdown. You have two very bright minds, and as you said, Moriarty is even more Sherlock than Sherlock is. Um, he, he's the big nemesis, and uh, this is what they did with that uh, showdown. What are we doing here, Sherlock? Come on out. I know you're here. Moriarty, he's back. Did you miss me? Yes, I did. Sherlock. Everyone else is so boring. Pool is a nice touch, Sherlock. Reunited where we first met. You're so predictable. Yet only half as predictable as you. So I assume you saw this coming. I assume you saw this coming. Yeah, and I assume we both saw this coming. Oh, not this again. Enough with the charade. Clearly, these are just laser pointers. Except, Except for the, the one pointed at John. John. So, you saw that coming, did you? Indeed. That's why I put a Kevlar vest on him while he was sleeping. I know. I snuck into your flat and took it off. I know. I was under the bed waiting for you to leave, and then I put it back on. Ow! So predictable. Well, did you predict I would bake you a cake? That's actually really nice. That's why there's a gun! Clearly you didn't predict that I had removed all the bullets. And baked them into these cupcakes. Sherlock, why are you doing this? To prove how smart I am, that's why I do everything. Sadly, you're not clever enough to have predicted this. Oh, really? Boy, Artie will bring a balloon to Rath, and it's not a very good one. Keep playing the tape. I knew you wouldn't like my balloon. Well, did you foresee my buying you a tricycle? I already put it on eBay. I know. I bought it again. Utterly predictable. Unlike these six pepperoni pizzas. And that brought a group of children to eat them. Impressive, Moyate. But I am afraid you have made one grave error. Your confidence amuses me, Sherlock. These children have a mutual friend, Cindy. And today is her birthday. Happy birthday! Did you and Moriarty just put together a birthday party for a little girl? Fantastic, I did not see that coming. And of course you didn't. Your mind palace is more of a mind Chuck E. Cheese. There's Studio C, and the punchline removes the menace, which is usually there. It turns out Sherlock and Moriarty conspired to uh, throw out a, a nice birthday party for a little girl. So, Brian McCuskey, this, the, the line there, I think, is, is apropos. Uh, why do I do all these things to show how smart I am? Was that, was that what Conan Doyle was going for? What, uh, he's obviously brilliant, or, or he's portrayed as being brilliant. 
I think, well, I don't know that Sherlock Holmes in the, well, Sherlock Holmes in the stories is certainly uh, susceptible to flattery. He does enjoy it when people comment on how amazing all of this is. But I think it has less to do with, with Sherlock Holmes showing off his intelligence and more to do with Doyle trying to popularize the scientific method, which um, he believed in as a, as a doctor himself and was trying to figure out ways of making science exciting and making intellectual labor exciting. Mm. Let's bring Michael Homer back in. Um, uh, Michael Homer, you've, you've uh, studied this connection to Mormonism and uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's very interesting visit to, to Utah. So first of all, earlier in the program, you, you uh, pose a theory. You think that uh, Arthur Conan Doyle puts in some unsympathetic Mormon characters in studying Scarlet because perhaps he had investigated Mormonism, rejected it? Yeah, uh, he. Uh, we now know, uh, based on a, uh, a new manuscript that uh, was called the narrative of John Smith, that he was actually uh, investigating Mormonism as early as the eight, uh, early 1880s, 1883. Uh, and we know that because uh, this early narrative that he wrote, kind of an autobiographical uh, piece, uh, that uh, he goes through some of the same uh, descriptions of uh, Mormonism that he uh, later did in the study in Scarlet. Uh, but uh, studying Scarlet, is a, uh, in, in addition to introducing Holmes and Watson to the world, is about uh, two Americans who were murdered uh, in London, uh, who were the sons of uh, Mormon officials, and uh, Holmes was uh, called upon to uh, solve their uh, murders. And it turns out that uh, uh, another American named Jefferson Hope had tracked these two fellows uh, down into uh, London, and uh, he, in fact, killed them because they had uh, years earlier killed uh, his girlfriend, Lucy Ferrier, uh, and that she had died of a broken heart shortly thereafter. So uh, it gets into this whole description after he solves this murder of uh, why, they, why these Americans ended up in London, why they were being tracked by Jefferson Hope, and it's all about... Uh, Mormonism, polygamy, autocratic uh, leadership, and of course, the menacing Danites—the uh, the uh, uh, the folks that, uh, according to the story, Brigham Young sent out to kill people who did not no longer believed in the system. So that that was really the uh, the yeah. So you have the two the two aspects of the story. You have the uh, detective uh, story uh, involving Sherlock and Watson. But then you also have uh, the Mormon subplot. The reason I think that the Mormon subplot is so important is that shortly after A Study in Scarlet was published, Doyle wrote a play called The Angels of Darkness. And in The Angels of Darkness, it was all about Mormonism. Sherlock Holmes didn't even show up. And this, of course, is before uh, Sign of the Four was, uh, uh, was published as well. So it was kind of in this hiatus between uh, studying Scarlet and Sign of Four, and it was all about the Mormon subplot. So uh, I, I think that uh, obviously that was a very popular genre in uh, London, and uh, it was uh, before uh, polygamy was abandoned in 1890, and so uh, it uh, just really went to the, uh, 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 the, the popularizing of, uh, of the Far West that uh, uh, folks in, uh, in Britain at the time loved to read about. Brian McCuskey, I wonder if, uh, does this appear in other, um, you know, works of uh, 19th century British 
fiction. This uh, there there was this strain, the the especially the the polygamous Mormon elder was was the was the villain in in some circles. There are occasional fleeting references in the canonical literature, but by far, Study in Scarlet is the novel that mm-hmm. really foregrounds it. Um, actually, I, I read it slightly differently than Michael, although it's only thanks to his uh, really really great research and um, and articles on the history and biography here that that I can think clearly about this at all. I like to think of Brigham Young as Sherlock Holmes's foil. So thinking about this in a literary critical way that you're inventing a character who thinks so fast um, that a lot of what he does looks like intuition, looks like revelation, frankly, to the people standing around him. In fact, at one point, uh, Watson says, you know, Holmes, if you were born in a different century, they'd burn you at the stake. And so in a way, in order to make this um, super scientific uh, hero credible, he needs to contrast Holmes with with revelation, with the prophet, with um, religious inspiration. And so that's kind of symbolically why I think Sherlock Holmes needs Utah in order to be invented. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you have to make it clear from the front that this may look like revelation, but it's not. It's good science. If you want revelation, you know, go across the Atlantic to, to Utah. That's, that's where you'll find it, not here in Victorian London. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Uh, Michael Homer, I wonder if you could uh, now take us on the, you know, the, the next part of this journey. Uh, fast forward several years, I, I'm not sure how many, um, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle has found spiritualism. He becomes an evangelist of sorts for spiritualism. And uh, though Mormons reject spiritualism, he decides to go to Utah. Uh, yes, and actually, <laughs> it's uh, interesting, as Doyle uh, believed to the end of his life, uh, when he was still publishing about spiritualism, that Joseph Smith was actually a, a medium. And, uh, uh, and that's why he uh, really thought that he had a good audience here in Utah. But what happened was that uh, uh, when he left uh, Portsmouth uh, and uh, was dabbling in spiritualism, actually wrote a letter to Light, which was a spiritualist uh, periodical, saying that he had been converted. Uh, he uh, started uh, focusing more on uh, his, uh, his writing as opposed to his medical practice. And so for a while he got away from uh, uh, spiritualism. But uh, after uh, uh, his uh, first wife died, and he, uh, when he married his second wife, who was more tapped into spiritualism, and particularly after World War I, where there was really a peak in, uh, in, in spiritualism because of all the people who had died and uh, you know, a, a real desire among the living to tap back into their uh, to their dead family members. Uh, he uh, became uh, convinced again, uh, reconverted, and started writing, uh, spending more time writing about spiritualism than he actually did about uh, uh, his stories. And in fact, many people have commented that uh, the quality of the Sherlock Holmes stories went way down after his conversion. And as part of that uh, uh, missionary uh, zeal, he not only wrote and published, but also traveled, and uh, uh, traveled uh, around the world, Australia, uh, Africa, of course, throughout Europe. And he did two tours of uh, North America, one in 1922, one in 1923. In 1923, he did a, a cross-country tour that took him to Utah. He had his whole family with him, and uh, 
uh, he was shocked when uh, they uh, made the tabernacle, uh, they being the Yildiest Church, made the tabernacle available to him to speak in, so he felt uh, very good about that. He did have detractors here who commented that uh, he needed to take back what he had written in Study in Scarlet, and his comment was, look, I wrote about it as it was then, but I will write about Utah as it is now in my memoirs. And so he studied, uh, wrote a book called uh, Our Second American Adventure, uh, in which he spoke very positively about uh, Utah and the Mormons in 1923, but then went back and said, but I really do think that uh, uh, Joseph Smith was a medium and he just misinterpreted uh, his message. Uh, But I think that uh, uh, he, uh, uh, that they, the Mormons, and I believe many things in common. Mm. Ron McCuskey, I wonder if you agree, agree with the assessment that the Sherlock Holmes novels went downhill in quality after, after a time. Well, it's hard to argue with Doyle himself, who also sort of admitted as much. Um, I, I like to think of that decade or so of writing about spiritualism as one long detective novel, basically, that it, when you read that um those arguments, and he wrote many books on spiritualism, the New Revelation, The Vital Message, they came out kind of every year uh, until the end of his life in 1930. They sound, they read like detective fiction. In fact, they read like Sherlock Holmes, that Doyle is talking about chains of evidence, he's talking about inferences and deductions, he's talking about empirical evidence for spiritualism. And at times you can actually see that he's quoting his old stories so uh, there's uh, a famous line um, when Sherlock Holmes says, data, data, I can't make bricks without clay. Well, that image of data and bricks and clay comes up repeatedly in, in uh, Doyle's own spiritualist writing. So you can see him being the Sherlock Holmes of this new religion. Hmm. Let's take another break. Yeah, and and I, and oh, I, go ahead. Let me just uh, mention something that's interesting there is that uh, many critics of uh, Doyle's uh, spiritualism have commented, how could the creator of Sherlock Holmes ever become a spiritualist because they consider spiritualism as so devoid of uh, any uh, uh, real uh, merit. And, of course, uh, Doyle's response was Sherlock Holmes, uh, by using the scientific method uh, and insisting on uh, uh, you know real evidence, uh, was the perfect person to uh, become a spiritualist. Of course, he never did. Professor Challenger did, which is another dual character. But he did not uh, see any inconsistency between the Sherlock Holmes stories and evidence and scientific method and him becoming a spiritualist. Yeah, that thought had occurred to me. Uh, Is there a tension there? What what do you think? Well, I would just say you need to, I would agree with Michael and say you have to rephrase the question. The Mm -hmm. question really is how could the creator of Sherlock Holmes not become a spiritualist? Mm -hmm. Yes. Right. Right. Interesting. Um, let's take a break. When we come back, we have an uh, email from uh, Glenn, who's a big Sherlock Holmes fan, and we'll hear another uh, clip or two. Uh, you're welcome to join the conversation. We're uh, taking a look at uh, continuing our occasional series, our favorite books. We're uh, talking about Sherlock Holmes, and we're talking about Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. And uh, we're asking you, what is your favorite Sherlock Holmes book, film, or television series, and uh, what do you think? 800-826-1495 or upraxis at gmail.com. More following this break. This is Brian Erickson and Bringing More to Life. Patients have the right to make informed choices about their health care. This means that you should be offered the opportunity to compare and make choices that suit your needs. Choice includes the right to select the services you use from hospitals, clinics, 
doctors, physical and occupation and speech therapists, rehab centers, independent and assisted living centers, home health and hospice agencies, and pharmacies. Information is available to explain your options. If you or a parent are not offered a choice, it should be explained why. Ask questions. Start the conversation now to bring more to their lives. Support for Bringing More to Life on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our listeners and the Sunshine Terrace Foundation in Logan. Advancing wellness, independence, dignity, and comfort. Information at sunshineterrace.com. Utah Public Radio is partnering with the Utah Debate Commission to present several debates this election season. Next up, it's a debate featuring candidates in Utah's 1st Congressional District. Republican incumbent Rob Bishop faces off against his Democratic challenger Peter Clemens. This debate will originate from Weber State University, and it's Monday evening beginning at 6 here on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for listening to Access Utah today. We are uh, continuing our occasional series, our favorite books, with Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's enduringly popular creation, Sherlock Holmes. Sherlock Holmes is thriving on television, continues to occupy an important place in popular culture. And uh, we are talking about uh, what Sherlock Holmes means in our culture today. We're also exploring Utah and Mormon connections and hearing sound clips from radio, television, and film. We're asking you to tell us your favorite Sherlock Holmes book or film or television series. Your uh, comments on what Sherlock Holmes means today. 800-826-1495 is the toll-free number, and you can reach us by email to upraxcess at gmail.com. We have with us Utah author Michael Homer and USU Associate Professor of English Mike, uh, Brian McCuskey. And let's go uh, to an email from Glenn, who has joined us uh, to upraxcess at gmail.com. This is what Glenn says. My understanding of Sherlock Holmes and his popularity was that the idea in the late 19th century of a detective who which used science, deductive reasoning, forensics, and others uh, what we other what we would call modern techniques was very novel. Combine that with the rise of the dime novels and the shift uh, work in factories brought on by industrialization, which gave people more time to seek entertainment. Books, especially dime novels or pulp fictions, were arguably as rapidly rising in an entertainment phenomenon as was our own internet phenomenon in the last 20 years. Some really good American serials emanated from the same phenomenon. One such was Nick Carter. It began in 1886 who could be considered a second cousin to Sherlock Holmes, at least by contemporary standards. Certainly his plot lines had to be inspired by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. I remember reading my first Sherlock story from a large, complete compilation. Within the first pages, Sherlock solved a walk in mystery and uh, injected some sort of opioid. I believe it was the beginning of a study in Scarlet. Despite my aversion to drugs, I was hooked. I would have a difficult time deciding which story would be my favorite out of them all, I do lean toward the old radio versions in which Holmes was operating around the time of World War II. It was called The New Adventures of Sherlock Holmes. I believe it was the first portrayal by Basil Rathbone and rounded out by Orson Welles. Thank you for this pleasant interruption to my workflow, says uh, Glenn. So thanks for that, Glenn. Um, Brian McCuskey, do you, I don't know if you know Nick Carter. I don't know much about Nick Carter, uh, although now I'm writing that name down to make sure that I get him on the syllabus All right. next year. Um, I would agree. You know, one of the things that's important to remember about what Doyle was up to is that he invented a new kind of serial storytelling. The Victorian novel, um, you know, most famously with Dickens, was serialized. So you'd have the novel taking place chapter by chapter, being released uh, weekly or, or biweekly or monthly over the course of a couple of years. 
Doyle realized that the problem with that is that if you miss a month, you're out of luck. And so he was trying to think about how you could serialize a story that would allow people doing the kind of shift work that Glenn is describing to just, you know, grab whatever was on the newsstand that 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 week or that month without losing the, the flow. And so the idea of a recurring character in standalone stories is Doyle's invention. And of course, you know, in doing that, he basically invented television. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Or the structure of television. The structure anyway. of television. Yeah. 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 Uh, by the way, uh, Glenn, uh, going out to the program uh, today, just about, uh, we're, we're near the end here in about four minutes, uh, we will we'll give you some radio, a radio version of uh, Sherlock Holmes we have prepared. Uh, so we do need to start wrapping up. I'll, I'll start with Michael Homer. Um, let me uh, phrase this question to you, and then you can say anything else you'd like to say about uh, Arthur Conan Doyle and, and uh, Sherlock Holmes. Um, you, you give presentations, I think, on this connection to Mormonism and connection to, uh, to Utah. What response do you get? What What are people's responses to Sherlock Holmes and Arthur Conan Doyle? Well, I, I think people are uh, still surprised. And uh, uh, another connection that I just thought of when uh, Brian was talking about uh, the serialization. Uh, of course, these stories were, uh, you know, first appeared in the Strand magazine, but then uh, would be uh, published uh, throughout American newspapers and. Uh, one interesting development was in uh, at the turn of the century, there was a, a police, Salt Lake City police detective who uh, took on the role of Sherlock Holmes. In fact, they started calling him Sherlock Sheets. And uh, he, uh, uh, there's a lot of information about that. Uh, and one of the last books that Doyle wrote, he uh, talked about one of the cases that uh, Sherlock Sheets uh, worked on, and but his point was that it wasn't because there was a detective like Sherlock Holmes that was solving it, but it was solved through spiritualism. So it's mm. uh, the the connection between Mormonism, Sherlock Holmes, and spiritualism is uh, is one that I think will uh, bear uh, additional fruit uh, going forward. Interesting. And uh, Brian McCuskey, you just have a couple minutes uh, here. I, I wonder if you could uh, bring things forward to uh, today. You, you gave a talk recently called Sherlock Holmes' Virtual Reality Goes Viral. Yes. Um, well, one of the things that I'm interested in is the way that Sherlock Holmes, uh, if you follow his model of thinking, turns you into, uh, among other things, a conspiracy theorist, right? That basically Sherlock Holmes is sitting uh, in his own little uh, perfectly engineered London, unaware of an author that is making every inference correct, you know, every empirical observation fits his theories. And so he basically exists in a kind of virtual reality, which is impenetrable. You can't break through to it. And so um, much like the intelligent design logic with the conspiracy theory logic, it's essentially the same thing where there's no proof that would get you to change your mind or alter your theory. There's no pushback from reality, just as there's no pushback from reality in a Sherlock Holmes story. And so uh, when I gave that talk, I was talking about different kinds of virtual reality realities that crop up around the figure of Sherlock Holmes. Um, but I should, you know, let's be fair to the stories. Um, it's easy for me to pick on the logic and uh, and make fun of the the milk drinking snakes from India and all of mm -hmm. that. It's important to note that that Doyle built in a defense mechanism against just the kind of annoying literary critic that I am. Mm -hmm. He has on a number of occasions got Sherlock Holmes complaining 
that Watson is embellishing these stories. And in the line that I'll read here, he accuses Watson. He says, you have degraded what should have been a course of lectures into a series of tales. Mm. And so the defense mechanism in the stories is that if you find logical uh, leaps and lapses, if you find factual errors, well, you know, that's not Sherlock's fault. That's all laid at the door of Watson. Um, and so you have Sherlock Holmes perfectly aware that, you know, these are these are bad models. If only he had written the stories, they would have been more like lectures. <laughs> Interesting. A good place to, to leave it. Uh, we have been talking with a Utah author, uh, Michael Homer. Uh, thank you so much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. And USU Associate Professor of English, my, Brian McCuskey, thank you. Thank you very much. And thank you to you both. Uh, well, in honor of Glenn, we're going to go out with some uh, radio uh, version of uh, Sherlock Holmes. Thanks for listening today. Makers of bromoquinine cold tablets bring you another adventure of Sherlock Holmes with Basil Rathbone as Sherlock Holmes and Nigel Bruce as Dr. Watson. And now, as we make our way through the night to Dr. Watson's hospitable door, we notice a feeling of spring in the air. The buds are swollen on the trees, still black and dripping from the rain. There's the smell of warm, damp earth. Delicious. Hey, Mr. Manning? Well, hello, Dr. Watson. I didn't see you in the doctor. Yes, I've been out checking up to see if my magnolias survived the winter. Any casualties? No, they all seem to be fairly bursting with buds. <laughs> There's nothing as delicious as that first faint whiff of spring. Or as treacherous. Come along to the house before we both catch our, our death of cold. After you, sir. Not a trauma, boy. None of that age before beauty nonsense. I'm not as decrepit as all that. This is Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences, KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSUFM Logan, also heard at upr.org.